Hello and welcome to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts, Clark Burrow and Lewis Cleland. This week, we're absolutely delighted to welcome another special guest onto the show. As we look to expand the nature of our content, at the end of the day, we're not called A Wee Bit of Everything for nothing. So what's coming up today? On today's episode, we have Cathy Schilling on the show with us. Cathy is a consultant in speech and language therapy. Cathy achieved a Bachelor of Science degree in speech and language therapy and pathology back in the early 90s. Cathy's vision is to, pro- uh, to provide high quality, timely interventions which are tailored to the individual child, their family and their school. We're both really looking forward to this one, therefore I think it's about time we get Cathy onto the show. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Cathy, and thanks a lot for joining us this evening to share your experiences in relation to speech and language therapy. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure's all ours. So, kicking us off then, can you tell us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date and your sort of route into your current job role? Yes, so um, I started off as a student in at De Montfort University and finished up with a degree in 1991 and straight into a post working for the National Health Service in Birmingham. Um, and I worked for the National Health Service uh, in Birmingham, in Warwickshire and in London until 1997 when I got a job working for the British Army in Germany and I stayed out there for six years, came back, uh, ended up working with uh, mainstream school service in Swindon and then um, had a two young children under the age of four and decided in, I have to work out how old my daughter is, in 2004 to go into independent practice, um, mainly because I needed to juggle my career and my family life. And so 2004, I started off as an independent speech and language therapist providing services for um, a wide range of children from different ages. Um, And this particular way of working enabled me to diversify, if you like, with my career. And I became interested in auditory processing. And so um, in 2007, I trained as a Johansson auditory stimulation therapist and um, supporting children with uh, auditory processing difficulties. And then four years ago, I took on the role of national supervisor for the Johansson auditory stimulation program, which is how I've met one of your previous guests, Mm -hmm. Andy, um, because he's also a provider. So it seems like you've um, got a wealth of experience then. So your main speciality is in auditory processing then, and I guess the people that work work with you and and yeah. the, the speech then all have their own areas of expertise as well. Yes, so um, within the speech then, there's myself and I've got three other speech and language therapists that work with me um, and somebody that keeps us all in tow and does all of our admin, make sure that we're arriving on appointments on time. Um, as well as the auditory processing, I also work with children with uh, speech and language communication difficulties and children with presenting with autism as well. But 
um, I suppose I'm known in this field, particularly for auditory processing. Right. I'm supposed to pick you up. I just picked you up on something in your introduction. Um, Try to get in there, but Lewis, Lewis beat me to it. Um, working with the British Army then, what was that like? Because as PE teachers, quite interested to hear. Yeah, what, it, was, how, how um, it was really fascinating. And having no understanding of what the British Army was like before I went out to Germany, um, it, was, it was quite a shock because the um, town that I worked in was a big garrison with um, six schools, primary schools and one middle school and loads of preschools. And because the nature of military life is one that is quite transient, people are moving around all the time, mm -hmm. it was very important to provide a service consistently and immediately so that children weren't going you know traveling back to the UK and then going on another waiting list so that they had services as and when you know was required and I guess that's part of the reason why I ended up going into independent practice because that allowed me to do that to actually work directly with the child and to provide intervention when they needed it. Um, and you can imagine there's all sorts of other issues presenting when you're working with families who are not in their own home country. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, etc., are perhaps in the UK, so that family support network isn't there. Um, mm. The perhaps dad or mum, depending on who is the, the service person in the family, might be on operational tour for six months. Um, so it's quite a you know, it's it's a very it was a lovely job, but lots of challenges as well. That sounds really complex. Mm. Yeah. So, Kathy, from my sort of reading online, it sounds as if you've done a lot of interventions in schools to support particular children and families. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit more in detail about the speech then and sort of what it entails? Yeah. So um, we support children from early years, from anywhere up from sort of two, two and a half, um, right the way up to secondary age and um, with their speech language and communication needs. Um, I do have a couple of university students that come to see me who have been clients that I've worked with for a long time um, and they have a diagnosis of autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, I also um, support some adults with auditory processing difficulties as well. So through my work with the sound therapy program, the Johansson, I've ended up sort of falling into um, that side of things. In terms of um, the kind of needs that they're presenting with, they might have language delay, they might have speech sound difficulties, they might have issues with attention control, they might have other developmental issues such as dyspraxia. Um, they may have literacy difficulties. They may have a diagnosis of dyslexia, um, ADHD, ASD, you know, the list goes on. And um, so my day is so varied as is the day of all the colleagues that I work with. So for example, today I started morning off working with a four-year-old boy who had um, speech sound difficulties. And when I assessed him back at the uh, beginning of the year, pre-lockdown, he um, had the use of uh, six different sounds, consonant sounds, which is quite limited. Mm -hmm. um, he 
now has developed and got a much wider range, still need, needing support. And we did some of that via Zoom um, during COVID times. Um, then at, uh, later on this morning, I had a Zoom one-to-one um, -one session with a pupil who's 15, who's on the autistic spectrum, and also has a diagnosis of ADHD. And with him, I was working on um, his social communication using some, the social thinking concepts by Michelle Garcia Winner and um, also looking at his memory and ways of helping him to have strategies with which to remember spoken information, with which to cope with reading. Um, and this week's task was make decision making and mm -hmm. getting him to make decisions because he finds that really, really hard and what the benefits might be um, and how to sort of deal with anxiety related to decision making. Um, see, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious. I see you say you work with young children from the ages of like two and a half. Is that the sort of earliest age you can intervene or I'm guessing what I'm trying to say is identify like a, 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 like a speech or language disorder? Like what is the earliest age? So Just kind of typically. So I guess if, if a child is, say, born with a um, disability or a known sort of chromosomal issue, genetic disorder, um, so say, for example, the child's born with cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, it's really easy to know that it's likely that they're going to need some support. Um, in a previous life, when I worked in London back in 1997, I also worked with um, young babies who had feeding difficulties. So speech and language therapists are specialists in the sort of head and neck, um, throat sort of area, mouth area. And so because of that, we, um, our understanding of the anatomy and physiology of all of that obviously lends itself to eating and drinking difficulties. So maybe babies who were born prematurely might need some, you know, support with um, feeding subsequent to um birth um so that would be the earliest is like neonates helping parents mm -hmm. um with feeding um then very early on identifying language difficulties if a child for example is not engaging in any communication at all no joint attention um not making noises not pointing not making their needs known we might pick that up if a health visitor has been involved um, as early as say 18 months and they might be referred then. So it is really early on and there are lots of early um, intervention programs yeah. um, on the market that you know I'm involved with. So for example, um, programs by the um, charity ICAM, um, they have developed research evidence-based intervention programs for very young children, reception age children and uh, key stage two. So the early talk boost, talk boost and key stage two talkers um, is something that I've been involved with. Um, and then as they get older, so if they're sort of secondary age children, there are programs by um, Victoria Joffe, such as the 
narrative programme and the vocabulary programme, which are really easily um, delivered, not just by speech and language therapists, but by teaching staff as well. And yeah. actually, if you're £80, you get quite a lot of information and session by session plans. So it's really easy for people to use themselves. So that's just to kind of incorporate into your like daily teaching practice, like little yeah. practical strategies that you could use. Yeah, very much uh, so. Yeah. So it seems like so, when you go back. It's a big focus, obviously, for our schools in Scotland is the, the sort of literacy development. Um, last year we had a, a summer programme to that. It was like an insight day where someone came in and was teaching the sort of concept of phonics. Yeah. For like reading comprehension. I don't know if you've had any experience of that. Yes. So um, through my work with um, working with older children and secondary age children and primary age children, I mean, the majority of children with speech and language difficulties go on to have um, problems with literacy. So even before you get to that phonics age, I'd be wanting to find out whether actually there is an underlying speech and language difficulty which needs addressing first. Right, if they've okay. got speech sound difficulties, it's really likely that they're going to have challenges with picking up the relevant phonics and hearing those sounds in words in order to learn to spell and to write. And there's a huge amount of research about children with speech and language difficulties um, who go on to have sort of dyslexia and learning difficulties. Um, the I don't know whether you know about the have I answered your question? Sorry. So, yeah, no, yeah. So, we, I definitely. So, we just say if I'm a teacher, kind of trying to use the phonics approach and really emphasizing how I'm saying the words, if they've got an underlying speech and language uh, difficulty that hasn't been um, that hasn't been assessed yet, we just say that that's maybe why they're not getting success with a certain pupil. So, maybe there's been a. I do. a do you know what I mean? I do. I think that it's really helpful to look. Because the other thing about children with speech, language and communication needs is sometimes it's not obvious. So, um, and what I mean by that is for some children, they're, they're just talking in perhaps very short phrases, but there are those children sometimes who are, are talking in sentences. So we think, oh, well, their, their speech language is fine. Mm-hmm. Yet we see other things. We might see um, in, you know, both young and older children behavior issues. And what I would encourage teachers to do is just to double check that isn't because they've got an underlying speech and language and communication need. So if you're not understanding everything that's being said in class, um, it would be a bit like me suddenly being thrown into a, you know, a, a French situation. I mean, I speak a little bit of French from when I was at school, which is clearly a very long time ago. Um, but I wouldn't be able to understand everything that they're saying if I was in, say, an A-level French literature class over in France. You know, that would be too tricky for me. So, and I'd probably get quite bored. And um, whilst as an adult, I can behave myself and not throw things around or, you know, flick bits of something at the teacher or punch my friend next to me, that might be why some children are showing behavioural behavioral issues. So I would encourage teachers to, to maybe just check out speech and language and communication. And sometimes that just means spending a little bit of time with the child. There's, um, on my website, there are questionnaires for looking at 
um, speech and language difficulties that teachers could download on the speech then. Um, there's a whole host of information on the website, the Communication Trust, um, with ways of looking at communication in the classroom, sort of group assessment as well as individual assessment. Is it sort of possible for something like a speech and language um, condition to go on into like mid-secondary school or that without being identified? Yes. Is that, is that common or? It, it can be. So um, again, there was, uh, um, if we think in terms of ongoing issues, sort of speech language communication or developmental language disorder, it's now thought that there are two to three um, children in every class. So out of 30, 35 pupils that present with specific speech and language difficulties. And yet it's quite hidden. So I don't know, you've obviously done a lot of research, both of you, so you know about developmental language disorder, but I would say that it's still something that is very much a unknown quantity that many teaching staff don't know about. Mm. Um, so that's one of my roles. And I guess one of the reasons why I'm on this podcast today is to promote that, is to make yeah. people and teaching staff, parents more aware that this is out there. Um, I think the internet is really helpful. I think there are you know, on Facebook, for example, there are some really good groups um, supporting parents of children with developmental language disorder. But to go back to your first thing about can it go on, DL, developmental language disorder is a lifelong um, kind of problem, not problem, but, you know, learning issue for, for those children. And it's a bit like dyslexia. You don't cure it. You have strategies. And with the right support, um, these you know, pupils go on to be um, adults with successful careers and uh, are able to attain educational goals, etc. It's when they get missed out on. And um, the, there are something like 10% of children starting school in reception are likely to have delayed speech and language if they are from a socio-economically deprived area, that can be as high as 50%. 50. 50. And wow. that, you know, and whilst that is a delay that with the right input, they can make the, the progress. And that's why programs like Talk Boost that I mentioned can be really supportive, evidence-based. It's eight weeks of intervention can help them develop sort of six, eight, 12 months over that eight week period so and in some cases 18 months so it's you know you've, you've just got the earlier we can get these children really the better yeah no that's interesting then it's interesting to see how like how early you can catch it with some with certain um issues or learning difficulties and then how late some of them actually can be identified that's i didn't really look at it like that and how these yeah. pupils could could be going through basically their full education with this. It's, it's, um, it's quite an eye-opener. What's been really interesting in lockdown, um, I've had one child who whose parent used to bring me prior to lockdown, very young boy, um, not really particularly cooperative. His attention level was really reduced. He would just be sort of using 
um, sort of maybe attend to an activity of his own choice for a short spell. He wouldn't cooperate with me giving him instructions or me asking him to do things. And shortly after lockdown, I started working with his mum and doing some parent-child interaction. So one of the programs that I trained in years ago was the Hannon Parent um, Program. And that involves working alongside the parent, helping sort of promote the child's communication through natural means. And this little boy went from kind of like single words to talking in sentences over an eight week period. And that was purely me training the parent like we're talking on Zoom. Wow. This way wow. and, and so, coaching her. It was incredible. Is that like, is that, is progress like that quite common or is that? It is. And this is where, you know, there's lots of evidence-based programs. These parent-child interaction programs work with very young children. Um, and not just at, at um, home, but at school, but it has to be really, really regular. So as in yeah. they need intensive interaction for significant periods of time during that week, but the, it happens really quickly. And if you're doing it, you know, over a period of time, then you do notice progress, like accelerated progress. Of course, to show the importance of engaging families, doesn't it? And getting them on, edu educating parents that's yeah, really important for any sort of intervention in school mm -hmm. um, it is and i think since with covid and i'm working with children in um a, a sort of an area that does experience social deprivation in um in, in a city and we've been using um zoom um as our medium for delivering the service because um obviously i couldn't go into the school parents obviously aren't you know with their children 24 7 and i would say again they've made accelerated progress because actually that's been their main focus is playing the games that i've suggested and mm -hmm. it's been really successful and i think that's been one of the positive things for yeah. me as a professional during this last five months i suppose yeah, i hear the term the term oh, sorry let's go i was just going to say there's a lot of positives that have come out of lockdown as well though like yeah. there are it's forced yeah. us to do certain things in certain ways that sometimes exactly. have a positive impact. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, uh, so when I hear the term like speech and language therapy, I'm, I'm always thinking the problems with communicating in terms of verbally. Out. Is there, is there, is there ever any, any, like any, any people you've worked with who are quite competent in speaking but listens the issue like in terms of the auditory pro processing? Yeah, very much so. So, um, I, I support pupils with auditory processing difficulties um, and do assessment and um, ongoing strategies with them. Often these pupils present, you know, nobody really knows what's going on because they're very um, verbally fluent. Right, okay. Sometimes big vocabularies, but how they are coping in the classroom doesn't match with say their language scores even so they might even have seen a speech and language therapist because someone said oh well, they don't understand any instructions so the speech and language therapist does a an assessment with them in the classroom so some of the pupils that i work with have um seen a speech and language therapist who's done a full assessment on them they come out with standard scores that are you know within the normal range or maybe even higher they're then discharged, but the teachers are saying, 
or the parents saying, hold on a minute, but they're not able to understand what's being said in class. Sometimes they're not understanding what they're reading because auditory processing doesn't just affect their a child's listening, it also impacts on their ability to read and to write as well. Because if we think about the skills that you need to process sound, they're the same skills that you need to be right, you know, using for spelling and using for decoding when you come to um, read information as well. So um, I'd always sort of say, look, you know, if a child seems to have lots of language and they seem to have a big vocabulary and you're not actually that when you do a one to one session with them, their understanding instructions, I'd then be thinking, well, what else is going on? Um, what could we do? And again, um, I mentioned before, um, I'm not trying to plug my website, but on the website no, no. under the questionnaires um, section, there's a questionnaire for auditory processing difficulties, which um, parents and teachers can access. And sometimes that just helps to pinpoint exactly what it is. So some children, for example, with auditory processing difficulties have real problems with filtering out background noise. So you know, as we are all having a conversation now, in each of our houses, there will be a little bit of background noise. Um, you know, uh, Clark, you're okay, you've got your headphones in, so you're blocking most of it out, but, oh, you both are, I've just noticed now, whereas I'm not. <laughs> well, he's, so, I've, I've also got the fancy ones, he's got the expensive ones. He can't <laughs> <see>. <laughs> they, they normally cut out halfway through the podcast, so I need to take them out and use my computer, mate. <laughs> So I can hear the pitter-patter of feet going up the stairs of my teenage children. You know, I can hear the dog just walking up and down the hallway. There's a bit of whirring on my computer, but actually my brain is filtering all of that out and I'm able to concentrate on both of you. I'm not having to use extra memory up to try and exclude that noise. Children with auditory processing difficulties don't have that it's like there's always something going on and so their brain is having and they're having to put much more energy into filtering that out yeah that's that's actually just made me think about something really like i have an insight there in pe obviously there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of activity yeah. going on so see when we're teaching them in the classroom they have to fill out this portfolio um it's got it's an extended writing piece so when you're teaching it in the classroom um, and you're asking them in a social situation, I suppose we're going to speak about social thinking shortly, but they can't really give you answers in a group situation. But then see when you, or, or even if you ask them to write in, write in a group situation, uh, situation, they struggle to put down quality answers. But then see if you meet them one-to-one -one outside the PE department, they can rhyme it all off yeah. and they know, they know the stuff. So that's maybe one of the issues then that I didn't know yeah. about. And I think as well, um, Clark, that with children with auditory processing difficulties, Think about the environment as well. So think about PE, where you're doing it. If you're outside, yep. there's all sorts of noises going on. There's traffic, there's birds, there's and you wind, know, whatever it the is. The wind as well, the weather. And all, and aeroplane. All, all our PE is outside just now as well. <laughs> of course. Um, right. And if you're not, you know, the number of parents that say the worst thing of all was swimming lessons. I mean, you just think about the auditory environment the acoustic environment at swimming lessons as a parent i used to hate it because it was just like oh i couldn't bear it sounds bouncing off the water kids are ducking under the the water and then the swimming teachers trying to give them instructions their ears are full of water how on earth can they actually hear mm -hmm. so it just makes you think about maybe 
creating as a PE teacher, you might want to create some visual boards for what you're teaching your pupils so they've got something to follow. The more we can give them visuals, so diagrams, there's a great um, resource online called Widget Online, which is a series of symbols that's very easy to use. It's really cheap to um, access. It's something you get three weeks free trial. It's spelled W-I-D-G-I-T online. And they're all sort of symbol-based pictures with the words written underneath. So as a PE teacher, if you were wanting to give somebody some instructions, you might give them all of those and then on a board somewhere, have them in symbol form so that those pupils who are having language learning difficulties, English as a second language, auditory processing difficulties, memory difficulties have got something to refer back to without looking stupid in front of it or feeling stupid in front yeah. of their friends. Yeah, that's a really good advice, I think, moving forward. Even, would you see if maybe having a video of a performance with maybe yeah. myself speaking alongside it as yeah. well, just to enhance the learning process? Yeah, absolutely. So so in terms of the concept of social thinking that I was reading about on your website, um, yeah. is this just helping kids, also what it says in the word, like helping kids figure out how to think in social situations, is that right? It is. So it was developed by um, a lady called Michelle Garcia Winner, who's possibly one of my biggest heroes. She's just amazing. Mm -hmm. If you ever get the opportunity to listen to her, and she's got loads of free webinars on her website, Social Thinking, both her and her colleague, Dr. Pamela Crook, are fascinating. And it has changed my whole working life. I learned about it eight, nine years ago, when it was relatively new in the UK. And it helps to support those children who may have a diagnosis of autism, may have a uh, diagnosis of ADHD, but any pupil that presents with social communication difficulties. And what do we mean by that? Well, it's, are they able to um, take somebody else's perspective? So as we're talking, I'm, you know, sort of, as I pause, one of you then might um, interject because you know about the rules of turn-taking in conversation. That's a sort of, you know, one of the rules of communication. Um, another one is if you are listening to me and thinking oh Kathy's struggling a bit now she's not quite she's a bit stuck or she's not giving the information that we want you might then say something in the conversation and that's because you're thinking about me you're thinking oh I can see that Kathy's having difficulties I know I'll pop in but for lots of the children that we work with they don't have those skills and social thinking teaches um, sort of main four main concepts one is listening and thinking with your brain and your eyes, your body posture, your body, your physical presence in the group, thinking about the other person that you're talking to and what their interests are and what they're thinking about and what they're feeling about. And the fourth one is how we use our language to communicate, how we use our language to hook other people into the conversation, how we use our language to respond to other people. Um, and unlike any other program that I've used previously, it's a cognitive behavioral approach to intervention for this group of children. So you actually get them to make a complete change in their thinking. And so for example, this 15 year old boy who I'm working with via Zoom, 
his teaching assistant um, mess emailed me to say, Kathy, the penny has dropped. Um, this uh, Teddy um, said, asked me today, how was I? And, and I said, fine. And, and she said, normally that's the kind of thing he's learned phrases is, how are you? And then he stopped and he went, no, really, how are you? You've not been out in you know, the, the world for the last three weeks. It must have been really hard for you. <laughs> this is wow. a boy on the spectrum. She's just, she's like, just so shocked that, she, that he's yeah, asked Yeah, she it. was just really excited. And then he said, and how's your daughter doing? So these are all kind of things that we kind of been building up to knowing, you know, making toolkits about various people that we know, but for somebody on the autistic spectrum to be able to think actually, what is that other person's life like mm -hmm. and asking about it is quite a major leap. So it's that just, sounds, it's, sounds as if it's got a lot of similarities with the emotional intelligence and the sort of em empathy, yeah. but th these are skills that, you know, children at that age, as you say, don't have don't have access to and don't have uh, exposure to developing. She's, she's produced some like amazing, really usable resources, really practical resources. So, in a number of the uh, primary schools that I work in, the um, teaching staff have bought the resource. Uh, you are a social detective, um, and have used that as part of their um, PSHE curriculum. Mm -hmm. So that's been, you know, really, um, really helpful. So it's not just singling out some children. It can be used for many, many children, but in fact, whole class um, situations yeah. as well. Yeah. I'll definitely be listening to this podcast back and taking a note of all the resources. <laughs> yeah. <you've been> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can I not get my, my notepad here, but I'll listen to it back, I'm sure. Uh, so just kind of finishing off then, uh, kind of the main part of the, the episode, uh, just finishing off with any um, advice that you would have for teachers who are dealing with young people with speech and language difficulties um, in terms of kind of maximising their learning and wellbeing. Would you have any kind of parting advice? Yes. I mean, I think there's the one thing that I've already mentioned is about being visual. Um, if you think about speech and language, it involves a lot of the auditory input. And so if we can give those children some, something visual to refer back to, that's really, really helpful. So that might be diagrams, that might be symbols like we talked about, gestures, makaton signs. It could be anything like that. Think about the pace of your own language. So I do speak very good Spanish. However, when I go to Spain and I'm listening to a native speaker who's blah, 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 like this, I can't hear the word boundaries, so I can't make sense of what they're saying. And I think sometimes that's what it's like for children with speech and language and communication needs. If the pace is so fast that they can't hear those boundaries, it just becomes too much. Yeah. Um, I think opportunity to practice words. So when you're teaching vocabulary, teaching new words, don't just say, oh, today we're going to talk about metamorphosis. Get the children to say the word, get the children to break it up into syllables, make sure that they're storing it correctly. I had a great moment um, a couple of years ago with a year eight pupil 
and I showed her an exclamation mark and I said, oh, what's that, Jemima? And she said, oh, it's an execution mark. And I said, sort of, it does begin with X, but it's exclamation. A similar um, thing with a boy talking about a computer screen and he had gone 13 years of his life thinking it was a scream. <laughs> a scream. It's going to move it. That. So the more opportunity, get children to say the words, get them to hear the syllables in them. Get it if, if you're teaching new vocabulary, overlearn it. Get them to tell you what it means in their own words. Get them to find a word that they can pin it onto. Um, get children to um, also repeat the activity. I think. You know, I'm saying this and there's another part of me that thinks my teacher friends will be killing me now because they're saying, but we have to go at such a pace. You know, that's yeah. how the curriculum is. But I might challenge and say, but hold on a minute. Actually, this group of pupils, if you go at that pace, they're going to learn minimal. If you repeat, repeat, give them overexposure, tell them to take it home. That could be their homework to look online. Um, there's a great book but, um, for vocabulary development called Vocabulary Ninja. I really mm -hmm. like that one as well. Um, that's, that's brilliant. And so is the Victoria Joffe for pupils in secondary age school. She run, um, has a vocabulary program, which is session by session. Um, I would say also think about your own talk. So we are i'm being very wordy today but if you can say it in a few words say it in a few words don't mm -hmm. use lots and lots of language um, i feel i'm really guilty of that that's <laughs> something that I, I genuinely that's something in my own like teaching that i really really need to work on like something that can maybe take maybe like five words i say in such a roundabout way and i don't know i just think i, I don't know why i do it but i just need to learn to yeah. get better at it but i think it's just habit isn't it it's just yeah. how we we practice and I guess it's something that you know with my years of experience I don't do it anymore yeah but equally I think it's really worth sometimes maybe recording some of your you know our own teaching sessions I know I do that mm. so then yeah. critique it and idea. reflect afterwards yeah yeah um thinking about pausing giving the child thinking time because say if your vocabulary for example is weak and is not so well organized if you use a word that is, say, less familiar, like say the word alternate, and the child has heard this word before, and as you're talking, they know it in context. If you then immediately keep talking, go on to the next thing, they've got no time with which to kind of work out, process what that word is. And similarly, when you ask them a question, just be mindful that they might need a few extra seconds. Now, in a busy secondary age um, uh, classroom, it might be that you give them, say, I'm going to ask you, prepare them. You say, right, I'm going to ask you this question. I'll give you a few minutes to think about it and then I'll come back to you. And then you might go on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the main features of, say, children who have problems understanding instructions and understanding spoken language is... I would want to know when they haven't understood something. And I think that even just teachers saying, having some kind of a code with that group of children to say, you know, right, hold a red pen up if you either need me to repeat it or you haven't understood it. 
hold a green pen up if you're okay to something that's really subtle that isn't going to draw attention to them with the rest of the classmates but that is very tangible for the teacher to be aware of so that mm. they know whether they've understood it or not and making that as a really clear target to the child as well yeah all right okay so so we've got we've got a quick fire round of three um with all of our guests kathy uh, yeah. So, can I be a bit of fun at the end? Um, okay. And just for us to, I suppose it's us being a bit selfish just to hear kind of the, the best books you've read so we can go out and buy them. But if it helps us, <laughs> then <laughs> I'm sure it helps everyone else. So, if you could have a giant billboard in your hometown, what would it say? So, I think as a speech and language therapist, it would be everyone deserves a voice. And right. definitely something. Um, with the uh, logo of the um, Raising Awareness for Developmental Language Disorder charity because I think it's something that isn't particularly understood. People know about speech and language difficulties, they don't know about developmental language disorder. So everybody deserves a voice. Yeah, I love that. I'm sure this podcast will help get that out there as well. <laughs> uh, what books have had the greatest influence of in your life? The greatest influence. So I think um, I can remember being very young and reading the diary of Anne Frank and thinking, gosh, that had a huge emotional impact on me. Um, I can remember reading the Gruffalo to my uh, young child as a, as a mum and thinking, this is just the best book ever and just watching him enjoying the intonation and rhythm. So I'm such a speech and language therapist, aren't yeah. I? I have to. I think Lewis still, read, Lewis still, Lewis still reads that before he goes to yeah, bed. Yeah, that, that's, that's my bedtime reading. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess also 1984, because I think now in today's society, lots of what he wrote about, about Big Brother watching you is what is in our own society. And I'm, it, when I read the question, I was thinking, what brought it to the forefront is that it's come full circle. I did it for O-Level and my daughter's now doing it for GCSE. So, yeah, so three books there. Fantastic. So I suppose in a few words, just for the last one, last one, uh, what advice would you give to a teacher working with one or a number of children with speech and language difficulties? So number one, get hold of your speech and language therapist and ask them to give you some advice. That's the biggest piece of advice I can give. Yeah. Find the websites like the Communication Trust, ICANN, Aphasic, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. All of them have um, such great information for helping people to identify speech and language difficulties at all ages across the board. Um, I think in terms of within the class, being visual, keeping language simple, giving the child time, not jumping in. Sometimes when we're having a conversation, we often sort of, if someone's not saying anything, we tend to jump in and, and make, try and make it easier. Or we think, oh, I know, I'll say it a different way to make it easier for them. Whereas actually sometimes the child just needs a bit of processing time. So yeah. it's being aware of that. It's thinking, has this child got a speech and language difficulty? Is that why I'm seeing a lack of attention, a um, behavioural issue, uh, selective mutism? All of those things might actually mean that the child has got an underlying speech and language difficulty. 
Well, thanks again for uh, agreeing to do this with us today, Cathy. And I'm sure yeah. this will help. Yeah, uh, thanks for coming on. I'm sure this will help the current teachers across the country and the next generation of teachers um, as this information is shared um, amongst the profession. And I'm sure it will be making an impact in the classrooms tomorrow. So thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you thanks for having me. Really nice to you meet you both. Each week on the podcast, we have our takeaway messages from both of the hosts. So today, I think we shall start with Mr. Burrow. What are your key takeaway messages or takeaway message from today's episode on speech and language therapy? A lot of excellent ones in there that can be taken. Mr. Cleland, you're spot on. Over and above the resources she, uh, she, she was given out and the websites which she was directing the teachers to, uh, can I just dive into basically the whole the whole vision of everything, first and foremost, is about people taking practical strategies away from the podcasts, the podcastees, and then implementing it into their practice the next day. So I'll just talk about my own experience from listening to Cathy. Uh, she spoke a lot about, a lot about diagrams and uh, pra uh, practical lessons as well as presentations during the theory lessons, uh, using symbols, sort of pace of, pace of our own language. Uh, the opportunity to practice words that are new, like new concepts in PE, which there's many of. Um, so I'll talk a bit about the last one, actually, which is repetition practice and how I'm thinking about my National 5 class just now and I'm on just going over the factors just now as they occur naturally in handball. And a lot of teachers as well in the department are working on data collection from the, their fitness and the CRE. So I, would, I, I feel as if I'm quite conscious on moving through the course content too quickly. Mm. And I've always got a lot of time towards February, March to actually get the portfolio finished. So they're almost finished like a month early, some even two months early. So I'm quite conscious of probably moving on through the content too quickly rather than potentially revisiting it um, over a couple of lessons or even starting the next lesson with... What, what we're working on the previous lesson, just to kind of revisit prior learning. So mm -hmm. that's something I'm going to try and try with this just year as, in the class. Just as a wee starter task. Yeah, just as a starter task, just to reaffirm, mm -hmm. and, or even as a homework task on Google Classroom, yeah. you know, making the most of that blended learning and making sure that they put a certain amount of hours into their uh, studies in the evenings or at the weekend. And that could be further solidifying the knowledge that they've gained in the class because for me as Arn Anderson said as well in one of the podcasts it's about teaching the minimal amount of content so we can get the, the depth yeah. to, the depth to the learning so I think that lends itself quite nicely to that that strategy mm -hmm. Yeah I, I think for me it's like what um, Cathy said about trying to say your sentences or your information in as few words as possible rather than I'm, I, I'm guilty of that and if I've ever done my um, evaluations at the end of my lessons, especially when I was at uni and stuff, um, that was always something I was conscious of, and it's still something that I really need to to dedicate some time to to, to getting better at, and I think that will help my pupils in particular if um, I really simplify how I'm saying things, and I think that's so important. And it's like it's like when you're reading reading something as well, or when I say if you write an essay for uni and then you you read it back and you're maybe over the word count. Yeah, like think uh, how many uh, words you can actually get away with taking out, and then it just reads know. so much better. It may, it's like easier to read. Yeah, I know. Because you've just added in all this um, gobbledygook, just trying to bulk it out, 
trying to flower yeah. it up and it just it just makes it more confusing. So I think that's um, But I suppose that's also a positive as well, that you're able to describe really well. So you'd be probably be pretty good at certain things. But it's just I think you can overdo it. Yeah. That's why we had to get the pro version because you couldn't shut up. Don't say it wouldn't be a podcast if you didn't get your, your fly dig in there. Eh? Well, that's what I mean. No, that's what I mean. Like you're saying it's a negative, but it's a positive if you yeah. want to get into podcasting yeah. and media. Like, you're gonna to go to the top. <laughs> I can't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, that that would be um my key takeaway message from today's episode. So, as always, if you see it on Instagram at a wee bit of everything podcast or Twitter at Burl Mister or Cleland Lewis, we would appreciate it if you could give us a share or a retweet as this helps us get the podcast out there so others can listen as well. Until next time, we hope you all have a fantastic week. Take care.